I invite you to open to the book of Psalms and Psalm 127. We'll be looking tonight at Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5. It was a few weeks ago that we looked at the first half of this psalm, which is verses 1 and 2, and we come now to look at the second half. It's a brief psalm, and I'll remind you that King Solomon was probably the author. The title there, A Song of Ascents, it's in a collection of those psalms called the Songs of Ascents. It says it's of Solomon, and that probably means that Solomon wrote it, although it could be that it was written for Solomon and maybe by his father, King David. But I believe it was probably written by Solomon. I'm going to read the whole psalm again. Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man, or blessed is the man, who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Let's again pray and ask for God's blessing. Lord, we thank you that we can come and worship you. We thank you that we can gather now around your word, and we pray that you would help us to hear it, help us to understand it. We ask that you would give us help by your spirit, that you would shine light upon your word and upon our understanding, and that we would take these things to heart, and that Christ would be exalted in every home and in every heart here. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, from the very beginning, children have been a heritage of the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward, a gift of God's grace from the very beginning of creation. The first child ever conceived and born into this world, this fallen world, was Cain whom Adam and Eve acquired from the Lord, as we read in Genesis chapter 4. And then the Lord gave them a second son named Abel. And the first son, Cain, as you know, became a source of the deepest grief to Adam and Eve. And then the second son, Abel, righteous Abel, was no doubt a joy to Adam and Eve and yet also became a source of deep, deep grief as he was brutally murdered by Cain. Every child ever born has been born into a fallen world. Cain was born after the fall. So think about that. Every child ever born has been born into this fallen, cursed world. And every child that will ever be born in the future is born into a fallen world that sin has left in the condition that we now see it, out of joint. This means that whatever joy our children bring to us 
is tinged with pain. Even before they enter into this world, as the curse was pronounced after Adam and Eve sinned, in Genesis 3.16 we read, God speaking to Eve, In pain you shall bring forth children. But despite the curse, children are among the greatest blessings in this life. They are even central to God's plan of salvation. Think about that. Children are central to God's plan of salvation, to save sinners. And we're told about this as early as Genesis 3.15, when that promise is given, that good news, that the seed or the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that was a reference, an early reference to Christ crushing Satan, defeating Satan on the cross as he's dying for our sins. So children are central to God's plan of salvation. Again and again, promises that the child would be born, promises of children to come, that there would be a blessing in one who would be born, the only perfect one to be born of woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the the sorts of things that I want us to think about as we come now to this little psalm and we think about the blessing of children in this life. So we're looking at Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5. And we're focusing on the gift of children, God's gift of children. And I want to begin by opening up these verses, verses 3 to 5. And remember that the two halves of this psalm go together. So I want us to briefly recall the main points in verses 1 and 2. So first, we have two pictures. Two pictures that Solomon is using to illustrate the basic principle of this psalm. And the pictures are very simple. They are the building of a house and the guarding house. Of a city. Those are the two pictures that we see in the first verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city or stands guard over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So those are the two pictures used to illustrate the same basic principle. And he could have used several other pictures. And the principle is this, that the success of all that we do depends on the Lord's blessing. Everything in life, all of it depends on the Lord's blessing if we are to have any degree of success. That's the basic principle of this psalm. And we see that there in those two pictures of building and keeping watch. So that means that the wisest plans, the most strenuous labors, all of it will amount to nothing. It will be in vain, as Solomon says. It will be empty unless the Lord adds his blessing to our labors and our planning and our striving. A man long ago said this, that the psalm is designed to inculcate, that means hammer into us, the lesson of dependence on God for success in everything. So if you get nothing else from this psalm, that's what, by the Holy Spirit, Solomon wants to hammer into us. Dependence on God in everything. And in particular, as we look at the second half, in the home. 
Well, in verse 2, Solomon paints another picture, and it's related to this same basic principle. But he zooms in a little bit, we might say, on somebody who is laboring in vain, laboring furiously, and even limiting sleep. So minimizing sleep in order to maximize labor as if sleep were only a necessary evil as a hindrance to progress and success. But the Lord would have us see the vanity of this sort of attitude, which is something we so easily can embrace, neglecting the good gift of sleep, laboring as if success depended solely on our labors. So look at verse 2. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he, for so the Lord, gives his beloved sleep. Now, in verse 3, as we come to our text tonight, in verse 3, Solomon draws our attention to a new subject. He says, behold, children. That's the subject, the home. Behold, children. He could have drawn our attention to many other subjects. But this one is especially relevant given what he's already said in verses 1 and 2. When we think of our lives and all that we do, the home and the family is central. It's central for good or for ill. It's central. So Solomon would have us consider the building of our homes, the building of our families. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And remember, we noted last time the special application here to the building or raising of a family. There's various meanings of this word house, and one of the meanings is household or family. So unless the Lord builds our families, we labor in vain. So you see how this is an application that's especially suited to what's already been said in this song. Now, this is interesting. There's also a possible play on words. Builders in verse 1, those who build, sounds very similar to children or literally sons in verse 3. It's bonim versus bonim in the Hebrew. Bonim, bonim. There might be a play on words here, and some people even think those two Hebrew words share a common root, but that's doubtful. But I think it's at least interesting, so I mention it to you. The successful building of a family, especially the having of children and the raising up of those children who will be faithful and who will be, as the psalmist says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, that is dependent on God's blessing. In the first place, it's God who gives or withholds children. So we're dependent on God even in having children. And in the second place, all of our labors in bringing them up, in the training and in the admonition of the Lord, as Paul writes in Ephesians, we ought to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. All of our labors, you could do everything right, but we still depend on God for the fruit, for the good result, for their salvation, and that they would be sanctified, made more and more like Jesus Christ. So we depend on God for everything in our homes. This is a reality that we need to recognize here at the beginning as we're opening up or seeking to open up these verses. 
We cannot, by our efforts and even by our prayers, ensure that our children are saved. We cannot ensure that. We plant, we water those seeds, we pray, and so on. But only God can save them. Only God can bring about the growth. This is a wisdom psalm. We need to remember that. It's a wisdom psalm, so it's very much like many of the Proverbs, which give us general principles, stating what is generally true. So take, for example, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. It says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Bound up in the child's heart, foolishness. Then it says, the rod of correction will drive it far from him. So the first part gives us a universal truth. That's true. All of us are born with foolishness bound up in our hearts. But the second part is a general truth. In general, the rod of correction, lovingly and consistently administered by parents, will drive that foolishness from a child, but not always. That's a general truth. And we see that again and again in Proverbs. And so it is here. As we think about raising our children. We know this and some of you know this by painful experience. But many good and godly parents who have committed their children to the Lord. Who have sought to do everything that the Lord has called them to do. Who have repented when they've done wrong. Who have have sought forgiveness even from their children. And they've prayed and they've prayed and they've prayed. They have children who are unconverted. And so we know that what we have here gives us a general principle of the blessing of children who are brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That they will be like arrows in our hands. Some of us though will find to our deepest grief, that they're not like arrows in our hands, but in our hearts, as we see that they're walking away from the Lord, the the path that we urge them to walk upon. So we're thrown upon God to trust in him in parenting and raising up our children. So Psalm 127, verses 3 and 5, our text tonight declares that in general, godly parents who build their home in dependence on God, seeking his guidance and his blessing, will see good fruit from their labors. In general, that's true. In particular, God will give them children and children who grow up to be godly and to be a great benefit to them. Children who prove to be a real blessing, not just to their parents, but to the world. Children who prove to be like arrows in the hand of a warrior, verse 4. So that it can be said, happy or blessed is the man who has a quiver full of such children. I think it's worth noting something here before we go any further. That children, in verses 3 and 4 is literally sons, sons. The word sons is sometimes used to refer to children in general, both male and female. 
It's similar to the way that the Bible speaks of brethren to speak of us, one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. The masculine is used in a general sense for both male and female. Certainly both male and female children are a heritage of the Lord and a reward, a gift of grace. Sons and daughters are equally the blessing of God. But it seems that Solomon would have us think of sons in the first place. And hear me out on this. This is something I really wrestled with. But I feel that we need to understand the picture that Solomon is painting before we go on to apply it to our daughters as well, which it certainly does. But there's a very particular picture that Solomon, by the Holy Spirit, is painting. And that's what I want to help us see in the first place before we go on to make any application. He doesn't paint a full picture of the blessedness of children. He could have had another stanza going on and speaking of daughters. And he might have said other things, that they're fair flowers adorning the home and so on. This isn't a full picture. It just gives us a little picture of the blessedness of children in order to make his point. Just as he didn't give a full picture in verse 1, he just spoke of building and guarding the city. And that applies to many other things as well, all that we do even. The picture he paints is this. Of many sons born to a man in his youth while he's still young, who are now standing full-grown beside their father in the city gate contending with enemies. That's the picture. So it's a father who has many sons. They were born to him in his youth. They're now grown up, and they're like arrows in his quiver, and he's there, and they're standing with him in the gate, and they're contending with enemies. That's the picture that he's painting. It makes good sense, just to think about this a little bit more, it makes good sense that sons in particular would be spoken of here. Sons are more accurately described as arrows in a warrior's hand, though I imagine that many of you would speak of your daughters like that. Yes, my daughters even are like arrows in my hands, but sons are more accurately described as arrows. It would be sons who would grow up to protect the family and even to go to war and to fight, perhaps, with bow and arrow. And furthermore, the building of a man's house depended on having sons. A man who died childless, especially back in ancient Israel, without leaving behind a son, that was seen as a great tragedy. He might have his name, to use the language of scripture, blotted out of Israel if he did not have a son born to him who would be an heir and then one also to carry on his name. So in such a case, under the old covenant, so this doesn't apply anymore, but under the old covenant, a surviving brother had an unusual duty, a strange duty in some ways, which we find in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Let me just remind you of this. I'll read it. You can turn there if you want. This is the law of the brother-in-law. Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 9. Again, we're trying to consider why sons in particular would be spoken of here as we're thinking about the Lord building the house or the family. So Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, 
The widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law, of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name, the dead brother, may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate, to the gate, to the elders, and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. See the language used there. It's the same language we find. Build up his brother's house by giving him a son. So when we're speaking of the building of a house in the sense of a family and somebody's name carrying on, especially in this culture, it was vital that a man had a son to carry on the name. All right. The text here. Coming back to Psalm 127 can be considered under two simple headings. And the first in verse 3 is that children are declared to be a divine blessing, a gift from God. That's the first heading. Children are declared to be a divine blessing, a gift from God. And then secondly, in verses 4 and 5, we have a very vivid picture of the benefit of children. Again, in particular, sons, but it applies to children in general. So a vivid picture in verses 4 and 5 of the benefit of children. So the blessing of children and the benefit of children. Children or sons are first declared to be a heritage from the Lord. You see that at the beginning of verse 3. Behold, children or behold, sons are a heritage from the Lord. That means they're a special possession given by God. They are a sovereignly allotted a portion. God gives them to us, just as, for example, God gave Israel the promised land, Canaan, as an inheritance. The key idea is that children are a gift, a gift from God, just like sleep is a gift from God. Children are a gift. We could translate verse 3 then, the first part, behold, a gift from the Lord are sons. And then the second line of the verse gives a parallel thought where it says, the fruit of the womb is a reward. And here the reference to children's more general, not specifically sons, but just the fruit of the womb in general. And they are declared to be a reward a benefit freely bestowed by God. So it's not a reward of merit here like wages. We do some work and we get paid for our work. This is a reward of grace. He says, children, the fruit of the womb are God's 
reward of grace to us, a benefit freely bestowed. That's the message of verse 3. Children are a divine blessing. They are a gift from God. Many people think of children in an atheistic way without thinking about God. They have God not at all in their thoughts as they think about children. They think in a purely biological way. They think of children as merely the result of the natural process of procreation. They do not consider that God is the one who opens and closes the womb. And that God ultimately is the one who knits children together in their mother's womb, as we read in Psalm 139. It's amazing that we can see somewhat into the womb and understand what's happening as children are formed in the womb. And some people see this rather than giving glory to God, and they say that this is just a natural process. Now we can get our minds around this, but God gives children. God knits them together in their mother's womb. So we must not think atheistically about children, but understand they are a gift of God. Then in verses 4 and 5, we have that vivid picture of the benefit of children, a vivid picture, and in particular, the benefit of sons born to a man in his youth. Look again at verse 4. It says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth, as opposed to the children or the sons born to a man in old age. Now, what's the significance of that little detail? Why does it speak of sons born to a man in his youth in particular? A father who has a son in his old age, think about it, might not live long enough, as one man says, to mold his offspring to habits of honor and virtue. He might die before his son or his daughter grows up to maturity, and even maybe before that person can understand, that child can understand what they're teaching. And so that's one of the reasons here. A man who has children in old age might not see his sons growing up to maturity. He might not enjoy the benefit of mature and godly sons. The picture is of a father now in his later years surrounded by his grown sons. And these are declared to be like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior. Now, a warrior is a force all the more to be reckoned with when he is well equipped, when his quiver is full, when he has these arrows that he can fire. That's the picture. You see what he's trying to paint? This is the man who has these sons standing faithfully beside him in his old age. Now in the next verse, verse 5, Solomon further paints this picture. He's continuing the picture, but he's adding more detail here. And he declares the blessedness of this man. He says, verse 5, happy or blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them, full of these sons that are like arrows in the warrior's hand. He's blessed. He's blessed. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. 
That second part is the explanation given for the blessedness of the father. Supporting that statement that he's blessed, who has his quiver full of them. Why is that? Why is he blessed? Well, one explanation is given. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Who does they refer to, though? They refers to his sons or his sons with him standing beside him. And he says, they shall not be put to shame, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. They shall not be put to shame, but by their integrity and by their wisdom and by their strength, these sons like arrows will be to their father, standing up to their enemies to shut the mouths of all who wrongly accuse them. In the gate, that is significant. The gates of ancient cities were not just the entrance, they were that, we'll talk about that a little bit, but these were something like the courthouses, the town hall. This is where things were decided. We read about it actually when I was reading Deuteronomy 25. Go to the elders and in front of the elders there, take off his sandal, spit in his face, and so on. That's where matters were decided. The elders of the city sat at the gate and cases were decided. This was the court. So it's sort of like saying, when people take you to court, you will have your sons with you and they will speak with your enemies. And it's implied that they will speak successfully and answer those enemies and shut the mouths of those enemies, whether they bring a charge against the father or against the sons or against the family in general. That's the picture here. They stand with their father and protect and defend them. Unlike the sons of a foolish man, as we read in Job 5, the sons of a foolish man, these sons will not be crushed in the gate. That's the language used in Job 5. No, they will not be crushed in the gate, but they will be successful in standing against the enemies of their father and of the family. And in this way, and in so many others, they shall prove to be like arrows in the hand of the father. So you see the picture there. What a benefit they are to this aging father. What a blessing to him to have these godly sons around him to support and protect. And of course, again, this isn't the full picture. It doesn't mention the mother, but what a blessing and a benefit they would be to her as well. Now, there is possibly also another picture here. So the gates were not just the courts or the town hall, but they were quite obviously where you go in and out of the city. So it was a strategic place for battles. If there was an enemy who wanted to take the city, if they could take the gate, they would likely take the city. So it's possible here that there is a picture, not just of being in court and answering those who accuse, but actually of fighting enemies who might attack the city. Another interesting part of this is it says here, they shall speak with their enemies in the gate. That word, that verb speak, can be translated destroy or subdue. It's not the usual meaning. It normally just means to speak. But we do find this, and let me give you a key example. Now, when Athaliah, this is from 2 Chronicles 22.10, 
When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. Literally, she arose and spoke with all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. Same verb. But here it refers to subduing them, to destroying them. And I think it's very possible, given the whole context here and the military language of arrows, that we should translate this as they will subdue their enemies in the gate. They will destroy their enemies in the gate. Possibly we're to see it both ways, a double meaning. It's hard to say, but that's the text. So these sons shall fly like arrows to meet, to destroy their enemies in the gate. So we saw in verse 3 that children are a divine blessing. They are a gift from God. And then we saw in verses 4 to 5, they're also a great benefit in so many ways. But here we have a very particular picture. And sons here are pictured as arrows working to protect and defend their father and thus the family. Charles Spurgeon says it well, as he so often does. He says, a man of war is glad of weapons which may fly where he cannot. Good sons are their father's arrows, speeding to hit the mark which their sires, their fathers, aim at. Let the Lord favor us with loyal, obedient, affectionate offspring, and we shall find them our best helpers. Some of you have found that already to be the case, and bless God. He goes on to say that we shall see them shot forth into life to our comfort and delight if we take care from the very beginning that they are directed to the right point. And this is as true of daughters as it is of our sons. So that's something, just trying to open up the text a little bit, and now... We want to apply it. And very briefly, I want us to think about a few applications of this text. And the first is really the whole point of this song. That in the building of our homes, we must depend above all upon God. In the building of our homes, we must depend above all on God, trusting in him. Unless the Lord builds our homes, we who build, we parents, labor in vain. The psalm aims to drive this simple truth home. It seeks to drive it deep into our thinking. It doesn't just say this plainly and then go on, but it uses these pictures. It's meant to stir us. We know this to be true, but we need to be reminded continually and have this truth pressed deep into our thinking, our daily thinking. We must depend on God in everything, in particular the home. It encourages us, this psalm does, to make God central in our homes, to make him central in every aspect of our homes. And to seek his guidance, to seek his blessing, to seek his help in all things in the home. To recognize our limitations, our weakness, our sin even, and our need 
of God to bless our labors. And this applies to our marriages, not just our parenting, but that we would seek God's blessing in our marriages. In the day-to-day aspects of the home, even little details, that all of this would be done with an eye to God and in dependence upon God, but especially the raising of children. This psalm calls us to action. It doesn't call us to be lazy. It doesn't encourage that in any way. Just as we considered last time, we are to labor, we are to build, we are to watch, but the blessing belongs to God. God must bless it if it will succeed. But we're called here to labor in the home, to work hard. Mothers and fathers, we're called to work hard. It's hard work to labor, not to be idle. Fathers in particular, not to be passive, not to disengage from the home life, to disengage from our wives, to disengage from our children. Whatever it might be, here is a word for us to stir us to action in full dependence on God and his grace that he will give us. Now, what will this look like for husbands and wives? What will this look like for fathers and mothers? Well, first is this, and this is primary, that we be seeking the Lord ourselves. That's the first thing in the home, the most important thing. As a father, the most important thing I can do, the best thing I can do for my family is to seek the Lord, is to be a godly man, to be growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. That's it. Yes, I need to provide for them and protect them and do many other things. But first of all, that I be a man of God. And that's the same with mothers, of course, too. That's what our children need above all. They need the Lord, but they need first, they need these us to be godly parents, to be seeking the Lord. But also, what does this look like? It it looks like us loving as husband and wife, loving each other, supporting each other, encouraging each other, teaming up with one another in this important work that God has given to us, praying for one another, studying the scriptures together, Speaking of the things we hear as we gather to worship together and talking about the sermon. How does this apply? Did you understand this? Sharpening each other. We ought to be a team, husband and wife, and especially as we're raising our children. We are to help each other along in the faith and help each other in the raising of our children. We labor together as Oxen equally yoked who are plowing in the same direction and not in different directions. That is how we are to labor husband and wife in the home in order to raise up our children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Fathers, we are called to lead in this. We are to do this diligently, starting early. And daily. Let me again read from Deuteronomy 6, which gives us a picture of what God wanted the families in Israel to look like. And we read this in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 to 9. This is right after that great statement 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Remember, Jesus said that's the greatest commandment of all. Love God. But then we read these words, Deuteronomy 6, 6. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So it ought to be regular as you have opportunity throughout each day to tell your children of Christ and to point them to the Savior, and to speak truth to them, and to correct them, and and to lovingly discipline. All of these things, we do it day to day. Continuing, verse 8, you shall bind them, the things that I say, my words, as a sign on your head, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, it ought not to be taboo that we speak of the things of the Lord in our home. It ought not to be awkward or strange that we have spiritual conversation with one another, that we speak of Christ, that we ask one another, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? Are you reading the scriptures? Are you struggling? That ought not to be strange. So we ought to be teaching, teaming together as husband and wife to instruct our children to administer loving discipline to our children, to nurture our children, and on and on and on. The scripture guides us in all of these things. We team together. So this is what it looks like for us to be building our homes in full dependence on God. Consider our homes. Those of us who are married here, think about your home. And if you have children, think about your children. And we need to ask these kinds of questions. Do our labors in the home? Do our attitudes, do our priorities indicate that we truly believe verse 1 to be true? That unless the Lord builds our homes, we're just laboring in vain. So think about that. This ought to challenge us in this regard. A second point of application, though, is that this psalm teaches us to view children as blessings, gifts from God. So it teaches us to view children as as blessings, as gifts from God. And we have that in verse 3. Now this applies. It's a lesson, not just for those who have children. And I know that this can be painful for some people. And I don't want to cause any unnecessary pain here. But I think that this is part of the teaching of this text. For couples longing for children, perhaps for years, And maybe now it's physically impossible, humanly speaking, to have children. You've longed for children, and you've never been able to have children. There's a word here, as we're reminded that children are God's gift. They're his to give or his to withhold, as he thinks is best, according to his wisdom, his infinite wisdom, according to his goodness. And so this ought to encourage us. Cry out to God. How many people in scriptures do we see crying out that God would open the womb? And he heard them and answered their prayers. But also to rest in God if he should withhold this gift. But it's a lesson also, and I hope this doesn't apply to us, and I don't think that it applies certainly broadly here. 
But we always need to have our thinking conditioned by the word of God because we'll start to think like the world if we're not letting God's word shape our minds and our thinking. There's a word here for those who do not want children because they see them primarily as a great burden and not a blessing. It's just going to get in the way of what I want to do, of my goals. I want to have my things and my time, and they will be an imposition. They will only be a burden. We need to let the word of God, if that's your thinking, let the word of God challenge you on this. Go to this, go to other texts of scripture, and let the word of God shape your thinking in regard to children. They're a blessing, they're gifts from God. Well, those of us with children, we might be tempted. We might be tempted some days especially, or some seasons especially of our parenting, we might be tempted to view our children more as a burden than a blessing. As we're laboring, as we're not getting sleep, As again and again and again, we're repeating ourselves and we're disciplining about the same things and it doesn't seem to be bearing fruit. We need to stop and think. These children or this child, this is God's gift to me. He's given this child, these children to me as a gift, an inheritance of the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. So we need to stop When we have that attitude, when we're tempted to think that way, and we need to think, and we may need to repent and give thanks to God for the gift that he's given us. And as such, being a gift of God, which he has given to us, that means that God has entrusted them to us. We are stewards. We are stewards of the children that God has given to us. And that means we're going to give an account of our stewardship, of our parenting, of how we raised our children. We will give an account for how we build our homes. Above all, we need to love our children and point them to Christ. We need to remember their greatest need is that they know Christ, that they have their sins forgiven, that they be right with God. That's their greatest need, and we need to raise them as if that truly is their greatest need. We, we need to believe that ourselves. It is their deepest need, their sin, that they're not right with God, and so we raise them with that in mind, loving them and leading them to Christ by our teaching and by our example. And don't despair. Because the work is hard. Do not despair because the work is hard, because it's thankless work. It is seemingly fruitless work at times. Do not despair because you've failed. Maybe for the hundredth time or the thousandth time, you know what you ought to be doing. You know you ought to be patient, even as we were hearing this morning, and you failed again. Do not despair. Why? God is gracious. Go to God. And ask for forgiveness. There is forgiveness with him. And so we go to him. But also we have the Holy Spirit. Those of us who are trusting in Christ. Think about the spirit who dwells in you. To help you and guide you and strengthen you each day. And certainly when you're in the trenches of parenting. So don't despair. 
and say, I'm just going to be a miserable father. I'm just going to be an angry father. I'm just going to be this. I'm just going to be that. No, you can be, by God's grace, all that God wants you to be as a mother and as a father. So do not despair. So as a gift, as a blessing, they are entrusted to us. us. We are to steward them above all to point them to Christ. Because our children are not born straight arrows, to use the language of the song. None of us are born straight arrows, but we have a fallen nature. We are bent towards sin. Left on our own, we will go down the path that leads to destruction. So they're not born straight arrows, so we have to raise them up. We have to teach them and pray for them and do this again and again and again. And we must pray because ultimately only God can save them. Only God can sanctify them. Only God can make what is crooked straight. A third point of application is this, that this psalm challenges us to think of the benefits of having children, even many children, and even while we are still young, verses 4 and 5. It challenges us to think of the benefits of having children, even many children, and while we're still young. Now, I want to be very, very clear on this point. There is no law set down here on when to have children and how many children to have. No law given here as to when and how many children to have. When it speaks of the blessedness of this man who has his quiver full of them, he's using a picture to speak of when you, when you have godly children surrounding you, the more the better. But this does not lay down a law. It does not lay down a law, for example, to say, because of Psalm 127.5, you therefore must have as many children as you physically possibly can. That's not a right application of the text. One man's quiver, so to speak, might be smaller than another man's quiver, so that his is full with two or three children, and another man's might be full with six, seven, eight, or more children. So you see, this is a wisdom psalm, and we need to understand it as such. This is not given as a law to have as many children as possible. So what's the way forward? The way of wisdom. You open up the word of God. You as a couple go before God in prayer, and you seek his face, and you make these kinds of decisions in the fear of God. That's the way of wisdom. That's what this would Point us to. Now consider the picture of verses 4 and 5 here. We should think of how great a blessing children can be in our old age. That's the picture, remember? The older father with his mighty sons all around him, his godly sons, protecting and supporting. Some of you are already experiencing this. You have grown children who are godly, loving children, and they're such a blessing and help to you, protecting you and looking out for you in so many ways and supporting you and caring for you and perhaps someday even caring for your physical needs as they cared for you when you were a child. So we know that children can be a blessing to us, especially in our old age. The blessing, of course, is not entirely up to us, but we must do our part, commit them to the Lord, and 
we have here a picture of the blessing they can be to us. So we need to consider this. It seems to me, as I was thinking about this, that the best retirement plan is to have children and to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, committing them to God. I'm not saying don't save for retirement, but this seems to me the best retirement plan is to raise up children, to have them and raise them up, and later on in life, they will be like arrows in your hand, protecting and blessing. They will be a source of security for you. This is certainly not the easiest retirement plan. Costing huge amounts of time and energy and money and other resources. Also, this is just a fact of life. Going back to what I said in the beginning, no child is born into a world that isn't fallen. There's always pain involved, even with the blessing and the benefit of children. So that children will be more or less, a source of many trials in our life. So that the more children we have, the likely there will be more trials in our life that we will have. But God will use those trials as he uses any trial to sanctify us, to make us more holy, more like Jesus. But by God's grace and blessing, we can also expect many dividends along the way as we're investing in our children. And then a good return on our investment, especially in later life. I want to conclude with this. There's no greater joy for godly parents than that their children are walking in the truth, that their children know the Lord, that their children have turned from going down the path that leads to certain destruction They have turned from that and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and embraced him alone. There's no greater joy for parents that their children be godly. I wish many good things for my children. I want them to be successful. I want them to be happy. I want them to have their own families. There's a lot of things I want for them. I want them to be healthy. I don't want them to have diseases. I don't want them to get in accidents and on and on and on. But above all, what I want is for them to know the Lord. And I know that's the heart of all of you who are godly parents here. You want your children to know the Lord. John said this, the Apostle John, in that little letter, 3 John, and he's speaking spiritually, but I have no greater joy, he said, than to hear that my children walk in truth. No greater joy. And every godly parent says the same thing. So children... Speaking to you now, do you have godly parents? Godly parents who love you and want you to know the Lord. And do you wish to be a blessing to them? Do you wish to be to them like arrows in their hand? A source of great blessing and not like arrows in their hearts. Well then, listen to their pleading. Be wise and don't be foolish. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And your parents will say, whatever else is going wrong in their life, they will say, I am truly blessed. I have children who know the Lord. Amen. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. Pray that you would help us to understand these things. Help us 
to apply these things. The blessing of children, we thank you for. Those of us who have children, we ask by your grace that we would be faithful in raising them up, that you would use this text to shape our thinking about this stewardship of ours, that you would bless our homes. Lord, bless our homes. May Christ be central in all of our homes, and may all of our children be saved. We thank you that over the years we have seen so many children come to Christ. And as we hear the young children in this congregation, the cries of the young children, our heart's desire for them as they grow up, that they would understand and embrace Christ. We ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.